Hello and welcome to Silence, a podcast that gives women a chance to get honest and open about what it's really like surviving and thriving in what often feels like a male-dominated world. All of my guests have been handpicked from the fields of science, technology, engineering and mathematics or STEM, where inclusivity and diversity can be a real issue. I know this only too well, having been a mechanical engineer myself for a number of years. I'm Dr. Shanice O'Mara, now a television broadcaster. I've worked on and reported on some cutting-edge technology and innovation over the years, and through my TV work, I've met some incredibly inspiring women from a diverse range of STEM fields. These women are true trailblazers, and I've often felt so empowered myself by learning what they're really like as people, usually when the TV cameras have been turned off and they're just being themselves. Each week on Silence, one of these women shares her unique experiences and truth without the usual pressure and stress of having to promote her accomplishments or uphold her impressive reputation. How? Well, because all of my guests are deliberately kept anonymous and disguised to ensure that we as listeners are not distracted or maybe even a little intimidated by all the usual kinds of societal labels and trophies. The women of STEM on this show have amazingly impressive CVs, but most importantly, they're human, just like the rest of us. And I want to share the inspiration and wisdom that I've gathered from them with you. It's my hope that you really relate to what we chat about today. And if so, please do subscribe to Silence and maybe even rate and review the show. I'd love to have your feedback. This week, my guest is in the field of data science. Hi. Hello. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Um, How do you feel about this whole thing being anonymous? Is that weird for you or are you used to it? Um, it's a little bit unusual. I do speak to the media quite a bit and, and of course I'm uh, quite passionate about uh, the business I'm in and, and also specifically around diversity in this industry. Um, so I'm used to speaking to media and, and I'm used to doing it as me uh, and, uh, and sometimes also in order to specifically promote my work. Um, so this is a bit unusual, but um, yes, hopefully I can. that means I can also speak maybe more about the negative sides of of our industry, which otherwise I might need to hide. Right. Are there lots of negative sides? Not, no, not lots. Um, I love the industry I'm in, and I think it is a great industry for uh, people of all genders and, and society to come and work in, um, mm. and I would recommend it to anyone. Uh, but it is not uh, void of uh, problems and challenges, of course. and. Uh, Sometimes we can talk about them and sometimes not. I mean, before we get into that, like what exactly does a data scientist do? A data scientist is typically an individual who looks at uh, large data sets within companies. Uh, We are talking, um, there are three types of of large or complications in this sense. We have uh, actually large data sets, which consists of uh, gigabytes, petabytes, terabytes of data. Uh, where you have to find some kind of signal. There are data sets that are diverse in the sense of you might want to combine numerical data with text data, for example. And then there is data that moves very rapidly, like t- Twitter feeds, for example, which are coming out at an incredibly high rate. If you want to analyze any mm-hmm. of these to get value for the business you're in, you are typically a data scientist, and it means that you are applying uh, computer science, programming, mathematics, statistics, machine learning, um, and generally problem solving and analytics to try, to try to find some interesting pieces of information within that data. Right. And is this something that you dreamed of doing when you were a child? I mean, I'm guessing that maybe when you were a kid, this 
kind of science didn't really exist. No, no, I, I could never say that I really dreamed of this. And actually, I do come from a STEM background. My uh, my dream was actually to become a physicist. And uh, since I was a teenager, I dreamt of becoming a physicist and becoming a scientist in, in general. And uh, and I, I, I did that. I, I did get a degree in, in science first uh, before uh, wanting to leave academia and, and try something else for a career. And that is how I ended up in data science. So what about physics um, did you love when you were a child? I think it was this idea of understanding how things worked. Um, I was a very curious child and uh, I even have this uh, distinct memory of when I was quite young, uh, probably about nine or ten, and my mother explained negative numbers to me, which completely blew my mind. (laughs) The idea (laughs) that there were numbers that that were opposite to the positive numbers. And I remember trying to tell mm. my friends about it and they couldn't care less about it. But uh, I think <laughs> I've always had a curiosity to try to understand how things work. And physics was the ultimate way to try to understand how our world, how our universe functions. Is mm. your mum one of your inspirations then? She is. Uh, she was not a scientist herself. Uh, she was um, a... a an office worker, uh, a white collar worker, um, who built a good, solid, middle class life for us. Um, but she did value education, and she was a very strong woman. She brought me up on her own, and um, and she also was involved in politics um, and other uh, extracurricular uh, matters where we lived. So um, she was a very strong woman. And of course, it, it showed to me that there were no boundaries for what you can do as a woman. You mentioned earlier that uh, when you were explaining negative numbers to your friends, they couldn't care less. I mean, was it really obvious from that young age that you were going to end up being in some kind of STEM field eventually? I don't think so. Not until my teenage years when I really set my mind for it but otherwise I was the first one in my family to study a STEM subject it was not really something you did Mm -hmm. in in my family it was more about getting a career that would uh, give you a decent salary and and a safe job Um, so I was the first one to go for something like that but again I had a lot of support from my family my mother was extremely proud of me when I got my my degree um so but i don't think it was necessarily obvious that that was where i was going Mm. so why did you brave it into a subject where it wasn't really expected that a girl might study it i think it was a certain level of single-mindedness so um, in in those teenage years when i started to uh, become a little bit more independent in what I studied, what I was reading, um, and I, I started to read books about physics on my own. And uh, school otherwise tended to bore me, so I, I would read on my own. And, uh, and and I just developed a passion for it. And uh, as I said, from from other role models in my family, I saw that you should you should do what you want to do. You should uh, work for what you think you can do. And um, and I think. It just um, it just became it just made a decision simply <laughs> that I was going to I was going to become a physicist. Um, so so um, it was I can't really describe it. I guess it's in my nature to set myself goals and, and go for it. 
Right. And so what was the kind of dream back then? Would you be working in a lab? Like what did I was going to win the Nobel Prize, of course. (laughs) Wow, ambitious. Uh, (laughs) Well, I also thought if you're going to do something, you should always try to be the best at it. And uh, I mean, I can say this because it is anonymous and it's typically not the kind of thing you would go out and and tell Mm. people that you have that ambition. Yeah. (laughs) But but, uh, no, I was going to become a a professor with time and then I was going to win the Nobel Prize, of course. (laughs) And so how did you make that pivot into data science? Like what lured you into that field instead? Well, first of all, it was a realization that um, the academic life was not actually that I was not so suited for it personally, um, because I discovered that um, I I did not enjoy the sort of hierarchy the and the career paths that are available to you within academia. Uh, that um, basically I I wanted to get to that professorship, but I would have to spend 20 years working towards it. And I'm just simply quite an impatient person. Um, so there were, there were many things about academia that um, maybe took a little bit of that uh, naive um, pleasure out of it right. once I was actually in it. Yeah. Um, so first that was the realization of, I'm actually not sure I enjoy this. And then the next one was, well, what can I do outside of academia, which was not very clear as my my uh, my type of research was not very um, applicable for industry. Um, and so I discovered this thing called data science where I could apply my programming skills, my analytical skills, but have the freedom to work in any type of company I wanted and and also to um, to live wherever I wanted and basically have control of my own life in some sense. Mm. It's interesting because you seem to have had, um, as you grew up, you seem to uh, develop a stronger sense of who you are and what you want out of life and your career decisions seem to have kind of um run in parallel with that self-knowledge um I say that because I kind of had the opposite where Mm -hmm. I studied mechanical engineering and then um was really wanting to go for a job in industry because of the money and you know the ability to climb up um Mm. within a company but actually my true heart is in research I kind of wish I had stayed in academia there are all types of jobs and there's all, all types of people and the one thing that I see say to younger people today when they ask me for advice or, or my thoughts on the industry is that the most important thing is that first of all you yourself understand what do you want what makes you happy what what would make you jump out of bed Monday morning to get to work Um, And then after that, look at, well, what kind of a job would allow me to do that? Uh, Life is too short, I think, to be unhappy. Uh, And especially as we spend so much of our time at work, that is a very critical component to to our happiness. And, And so I see far too many people who are unhappy but who either do not dare to change careers or or just don't know what else is out there and how they can get it. Mm. So what's your day job like? You know, what? why are you happy to jump out of bed on a Monday morning? <laughs> <laughs> well, so now um, my job has moved on a little bit to also include 
um, being a team leader, um, essentially, and uh, working with people and helping to make the most out of them um, as as a team and as individuals. Um, and that, that I find very exciting. It means that no day is the same as the next. I have very varied work duties. So again, I like that variety that I'm not doing the same thing over and over again. Um, and I really like to encourage and, and develop people. Mm. I once heard that the best, um, someone once told me that the best, the best leaders are the ones who actually create new leaders. Mm. And so you're not a leader until you've created new leaders, other leaders mm. from your leadership. And, and that's something that, that I find quite a challenge for myself to set to, to create new leaders and to create new experts in their fields. And um, yeah, that's something I'm very excited about. Cool. Yeah, that's so inspiring. So what's the ratio like, you know, because I haven't had the impression that all throughout your academic career, you've actually been aware or even held back by the fact that you're female in a very male dominated industry. No, um, certainly not in academia. Um, I have to say that I hardly noticed any form of gender discrimination or, or, or that it was an issue at all in academia. Um, my area of physics was quite balanced to start with, and mm. uh, and so many of the PhDs around me, etc., were also women. So, so in academia, that was not an issue at all. I would say that's so unusual, isn't it, for physics? And um, well, it's it, and it's interesting also because obviously I left before I got very senior, so it is quite possible that I would have encountered it later in my career had I continued but yeah. but certainly at the sort of junior levels where I was um I didn't notice it so even at undergrad level no I mean I, I can't say that the ratio was 50 50 it certainly yeah. was not that but I also I can't say that I felt treated differently um right. either positively or negatively <laughs> for for being a woman mm, that's so great I mean, often physics is very heavily male dominated and, mm. uh, you know, I've had a few physicists on this show and they've talked about kind of feeling very intimidated and shy to participate in class and things like that. Um, doesn't seem to have affected you in that way. No. And um, I guess uh, it comes back a little bit to the fact that I grew up alone with my mother, I think, in that um for me, it was perfectly natural that if I had an opinion about something, I was going to say it, and I wasn't shy about it. And and um, and so I was never held back um, at home. I was never I was never shy in school uh, to say my opinion, and uh, that's continued with me my whole life. That at least there have been no boundaries within myself. No, I've been very happy to just go ahead and do whatever I wanted to do. Um, but um, it's it's only now, once I'm in industry, where I do feel a more tangible presence of a certain prejudice. Hmm. That's so interesting because uh, definitely what I have noticed about successful women uh, within STEM is their ability to be assertive. So it sounds like you really did develop that skill early on. Um, but now that you're in industry, you're being kind of pushed to your limits with it. Is that true? Yes. 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 And I guess 
you have to be it, it has to be in your nature a little bit to get through stem to at, at at this point anyway it has to be a bit in your nature to be not shy and to be assertive as you say and and to not care about what others may think of you um because it will be at times a lonely place to be mm. um so you have to have a little bit of a thick skin and i, I that is something that i hope with um, all the events and activities and, and conversations that are happening in this space, such as this podcast, for example, that with time we can change that. Mm. Um, uh, when that fraction of people will approach 50-50, then, then you can be any type of personality you mm. want, hopefully, and still succeed. But those of us who who did this 20, 30 years ago, we uh, we needed to have a bit of a thicker skin to get through it. What kind of challenges are you facing currently? Uh, well, I mean, there are obvious things like if I go to a meeting with a male colleague that the people in the room will tend to face my male colleague first and expect that he is the one leading the conversation, even though it may be that that person is junior to me and I'm actually their boss. And then I have to assert myself uh, to, to show that I'm actually the one that you should mostly be focusing on mm. in this meeting. Um, that happens yeah, quite often. People make assumptions on who you are. If you go to a technical event, they might assume that you are there as a recruiter or an assistant or something rather than as an actual scientist. Um, and so, so there, there are unfortunately quite tangible events like mm. that, which I never felt in academia. Right. And so how have you evolved to deal with that? So one of the things that, that I did, um, and I'm... I'm not sure whether I, it, well, it's probably one of those things I'm not proud of. Um, and again, I wouldn't necessarily talk very openly about is that I, I think I changed how I dress. And I guess I've never dressed in a very girly way to start with. Um, but I, occasionally I like to have a nice dress on or a nice skirt and, 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 and top and so on. And I did st start to notice that People treated me differently if I was in a dress versus uh, trousers and and uh, a cut shirt or something. Um, yeah. And so, um, so I uh, I then um, basically merged into more and more just wearing more gender neutral clothing um, mm. because then I felt that they 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 listened more to what I said rather than judge me from the surface. Gosh, ah, oh, why do I feel like my heart's breaking at hearing that? <laughs> I mean, I think the reason why it is heartbreaking is because um, I really feel like for women to cope in a male-dominated environment, they have to kind of deny their femininity. And I just, it really, I find that so upsetting that we have to pretend to be something we're not I mean can't we be in an environment mm. where we're actually celebrating what we as women bring to the table yes and I think there's other times also um so that's that surface but of course we are also I think conforming um in our personalities and, and internally as well and uh, um for example if if you if you get upset about something in a conversation uh, it doesn't really matter whether you sort of have your if you're justified or not in that because you often then called out as being emotional mm. as as being either too soft uh and uh, and and too sensitive or being a bitch 
uh, and being too aggressive. Right. Um, and I think that as women, we walk a very tight rope yes. there of getting getting a, the communication with others right. Men have a much wider spectrum where they are forgiven for uh, being one way or the other, whereas as women, we, we have a very narrow spectrum where we are sort of accepted, our response is accepted. Mm. So how do you deal with that tightrope? <laughs> Uh, yes, that's well. I'm still on the learning curve there. I think. <laughs> um, I mean, there must be examples of where you've kind of like, kind of regretted what you've done, or you've been extremely proud of the way you've handled things. Like, you know, where are you currently at with it? Because, for example, with me, I just became extremely aggressive, mm-hmm. um, and to the point where I kind of I didn't like who I was. I think uh, I, my defense mechanism is to to basically try to distance myself from those who I feel are judging me in that sense. Um, so if I don't necessarily need to interact with them in the future, I will just ignore them and pretend that it's their loss in some sense that they don't have me in their network anymore. Um, and I've also um, on the on 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 maybe a slightly comforting side, I have also had individuals in my network who have come back to me two three years later and said you know what i dismissed you back then because i thought you were too humble too naive to this to that mm-hmm. um but now i realized that i was wrong and i see that you've been very successful and therefore um i'm sorry and uh, can we pick it up again mm-hmm. and and i then you know i feel like uh, you, you've realized the mistake here, which means that it might help others in the future. And, right. and I'm quite happy then to, to welcome them back into into my network. Yeah. I mean, it's in moments like that where if someone had said that to me, I would actually feel relieved that I continue to be myself. Because I think sometimes mm. there's a real tendency for women to change who they are and kind of be like fake it to make it. Um mm. And when someone actually apologizes and says, you know what, me condemning you for being emotional was a bit harsh, you just think, yes, I had every right to be emotional. And I'm, I'm, and then it kind of makes you want to just go forward in the future, just allowing yourself to be who you actually are. Mm. But it takes a few experiences like that or just time to learn that it, the only way that we can really, it takes time to learn that the only way to be accepted within male-dominated environments is to actually accept ourselves first. Mm. And that's like a massive lesson to learn, isn't it? Yes, yes. And I think it is important to to have supportive people around you who you can, when someone says something stupid to you, that you can go to them and, A, you can sense check with them. Like they, they said that, I reacted this way because of that. Do you think that's true or not? Um, and also um, someone who can sort of pat you on the back and say, you're actually doing a good job. This is, you're not overreacting. You're not this or that. You're doing a good job. Um, and I think that is important. And I think um, of, of many of the very successful women I know in the technology industry today are successful because they also have very supportive partners or family or friends who 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 boost them when they need that little extra boost when they are feeling sad because of what someone said or did to you right 
Do you have that? Yes, I have a very, very supportive husband uh, without, uh, well, or, or who has enabled me to have the career that I, I wanted to have and, and that I have been fortunate enough to have. Um, he, so he's he supported me both both uh, financially and mentally <laughs> for many oh, years wow. now. And uh, I, I owe everything to him. What yeah. a gift to have met someone like that. Yes, yeah. yes. Um, and that, but I think that's another interesting thing on the another twist on the on the gender prejudice thing is that he he my husband is very happy to be that role of the supportive husband, um, but of course growing up for him that was not what was expected of him, and so when when we met and and uh, we realized that actually I wanted a career and he was happy to be in my shadow and supporting in some sense, then it was a revelation for both of us because I didn't think men like that existed and he didn't think that women like I existed. Mm, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and I think many men actually hesitate to, um, to even offer up to doing that role simply because that's not what they think is expected of them. Yeah. I mean, how did you meet well, we met during our, our, our scientific career, so um, he was also a physicist, wow. <laughs> and uh, we met within our, our physics circles, and um, he actually initially gave up his scientific career for me, because as a scientist, you, you have to go where the jobs are, uh, which means that you have very little uh, choice about where you end up living, uh, and that also means that many scientists struggle, many couples mm -hmm. struggle to find place where they can work and and live together um, yeah. so he gave up his career first so that he could sort of track me around europe uh for my career wow. and um yeah. it sounds like true love <laughs> oh yes i'm always so fascinated about the kinds of partners my women in stem guests have because we're such capable powerful alpha females and I always wonder what kind of man would suit women like that or or women I mean I always wonder what kind of partners would suit alpha women like that um what do you think is the secret <laughs> <laughs> I think it's it's about being equals on every level um from you know who does the dishes to um ultimately also on an intellectual level so Whereas my husband is very supportive and he's very happy to let my career uh, take precedence over his, he is by no means a, a dud himself. He has a very good job himself and um, and he has a career of his own as well. Um, but he's just happy to, to let me do that because he actually takes pleasure in, in seeing my career uh, come along as well. What I've also seen is that many women who who are in a similar situation to myself, um, they actually work with their husbands. So um, they 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 either start their own companies together with their husbands, or or somehow end up working in the same teams as them, um, because they are such equals at all level, and they uh, are, trust each other one hundred percent. And uh, and there's a loyalty and an, and an understanding, a deep understanding that you can't have with other people in some sense. Um, so I noticed that a lot of couples work together um, when when you have a strong woman, and um, 
I, I think maybe there's some sort of secret to that, but maybe someone should research that and put it in a book. <laughs> yes. Yes. I mean, it really, uh, it's, I think the kind of partner we attract um, is actually a really good representation of how we feel about ourselves as individuals. Mm -hmm. um, you know, how much you're willing to um, be supported or have support. I mean, all these kinds of mm. characteristics um, are a pure reflection of uh, what, we feel we deserve really yes yes um and so it's very interesting that you've picked such a good man I mean he just sounds so loyal <laughs> I guess I was lucky <laughs> yeah well I think luck comes into it as well but I, I I also think that we are magnetized to um just people that uh are a good match mm. I guess and um one of the things that I have observed um, about women in STEM is that they have a very strong sense of what they want and what they don't want, maybe because science is so methodical. Mm -hmm. um, you know, their approach to relationships can actually be quite methodical. Yes. That's an interesting observation, which might very well be true. Um I was also speaking to someone today who, and we were talking about uh, communication and transparency within teams. And, and if you are a team leader, how much do you tell your team about what's actually happening? Or do you tell them everything or do you tell them nothing, etc.? cetera? And, um, and I said to these people, I said, uh, well, I, I, if it was me who was in that team, I would want to know everything. I would want to have all the facts, even if they are terrible. <laughs> And and he said, well, you have to remember that that's the scientist in you um, and that uh, very few people are that scientific in terms of taking information, whether it's good or bad, and then making a judgment that is not emotional, that is objective based on that information, whereas the vast majority of people make very emotional decisions and, and actually would not want to know all the facts if for some reason it would be perceived as negative. Um, and and that's just that struck me just today that there is probably some truth in that that um, if you come from a science background you are used to taking information and without judgment and then and then trying to analyze it right which just seems so smart to kind of approach <laughs> life that way but don't you think um, but it means that we we are misunderstood and and we misunderstand others possibly. Mm, because everything's intellectualized then yes because mm. you expect others to make the same sort of rational judged decisions but in fact right. they don't <laughs> yeah because you know the, the approach that you talk about is very intellectual I think um, mm. and very sort of like logical but life tends to be a lot more messy doesn't it and a lot more kind of uh, gray rather than black and white Yes. Yes. And I, we rarely have the time in our busy lives to really weigh the pros and cons of every decision we make. Mm. Um, we have to, we have to go with gut instinct many times, but, um, yeah. Mm. And sometimes data is presented to us in a certain way, um, whereby it's interpreted differently 
from person to person. I mean, yes. I mean, as a data scientist, you must come across this a lot, where um, the data is showing one thing, but you can actually interpret those results one way or another. Of course, yes, yes. I mean, I, I guess the the old there's an old saying that statistics can prove you anything you want in some sense, uh, and data science is an extension of statistics into the mm. modern era of larger data sets and more computing power. Um, I think the, the the most obvious case is the discussion around the debate around how Brexit happened here in the UK, and I think it's uh, it's quite common knowledge now that the vote leave side of the campaign um, used data science very heavily to try to target the the voters they wanted to target with the message they wanted those voters to hear. Um, whereas the Remain campaign were not so active uh, to use data science. And of course, we have the whole Cambridge Analytica uh, scandal and such coming as a result of it. But I guess what I'm trying to say is that there is a, a challenge with data science and there's a debate in our in our community around the ethical use of data science and how mm. it can be used to influence people and and I think actually that brings back a very important point about diversity as well, because um, for companies to act ethically, uh, it becomes harder if you have a more diverse team. If if everyone looks and thinks the same way, then it's easy for them to sort of maybe stray down the wrong path because there is no one saying, hey, I'm not sure this is, right. we should be doing this. Yeah. Whereas if you have a mixed team with mixed backgrounds, experiences, uh, gender viewpoints, um, then hopefully someone in there will go, we should really think about whether this is the right thing to do. Right. So how is it tackled at your place of work? It's um, it's difficult. Um, I mean, it, there just actually, I think it was actually just last week that the EU, uh, was it EU or UK, who published ethical guidelines for AI and and as I said, I think the most important thing is to keep that debate going around what what is right, what should we be doing, what should we not be doing, um, and and again, as, as I said, just making sure that teams are are diverse and and that there is someone that sends checks what you're doing at any time. It's um, but it's not an easy question to answer, mm. and um, I, I do think that there will always be, unfortunately. Group groups of people and companies who end up doing the wrong thing, um, yeah. just simply because there's a lack of oversight and control within those companies. Right. I mean, assuming that you are doing the delightful thing of having diverse teams, does that mean then that your teams are often in conflict? That's a good question. No, no, I wouldn't say so. Not necessarily. I mean, of course, what you want to foster is an environment where there is a constructive debate. Mm. Um, so, of course, you want you want everyone within a team to constructively criticize what you're doing at all times, because that's the only way to innovate. That's the only way to, to grow as a team and to, to be successful is to point out where the product you're building is not right and, and how you can improve it. Mm. Um, of course, what if, as a team leader you then need to look into is or be careful of is turn, making sure that it is indeed a, a positive, safe environment where for this constructive uh, criticism and that it doesn't turn 
toxic and negative or, or bullying um, type of environment. Um, and that's, again, a, a difficult line to, to tread. This might be a bit of a controversial question, but when you're analysing data, <laughs> do you know what result you want before you found it? Well, as a, as a scientist, uh, we have our, our scientific method, right? Which is typically that you start with a hypothesis. So a guess. Um, I guess that if my customer buys milk, that they might also like to buy cereal. Um, and then you go out and test it. So you find the data for purchasing behaviors, and then you see, well, are you more likely to buy cereal if you've bought milk? Um, and and that's one way to, to do these types of projects um, where you have an idea that you're trying to prove one way or another. Um, in a, there are, of course, other cases where you have no idea what um, what you're after. Um, I also, a little anecdote here as well, uh, which I can talk about because um, because I am anonymous, is that you, even though data might tell you something, doesn't necessarily mean that the company accepts it as, as true either. Um, I was at some point working in a bank um, where we were looking at um, what factors would affect whether someone would default on their loan or not. And uh, certain factors came out with the unintuitive sign. So let's say, for example, um, your salary. You would assume that the higher salary you have, the the less likely you are to uh, default on your mortgage. Mm. Um, but in this case, it wasn't necessarily that particular feature, but it, it, let's say it came out the other way around, that more salary would mean more likely to default. Um, when we took that model to the uh, executives of the bank, they just said, well, that's clearly wrong. Therefore, just throw that out. Throw the data out because it's, it's wrong. Um, which is very frustrating, again, for a scientist, because that is what the data tells you. Um, whether you think it's right or not doesn't come into it, and throwing it out is actually falsifying your mm. results. So, um, <laughs> yeah, um, I, I, lost, I, I lost the start of that question, <laughs> but it was, um, I guess, the point I was trying to make was that um, you can, of course, make the data show show whatever you want, and sometimes it's accepted and sometimes it's not. And again, it's a little bit up to the integrity of the data scientist to um, to promote what they think is the truth rather than what uh, the company wants mm. to hear. And have you seen a distinct difference between men and women's intentions for the science you do? And what do you mean with intention? Men and women seem to take a very different approach to things. So, for example, within architecture, um, women may opt for designs that are more maybe nurturing and more uh, community conscious or, you know, just different characteristics. Whereas yeah. men yeah. may want to go, you know, design a building that you know, shows majesty and power and status <laughs> and that kind of thing. And, yeah. you know, I, I'm making massively broad sweeping statements here, but I just wondered whether you noticed similar trends within data science between men and women. It's it's actually still a small number of statistics, um, pardon the pun, um, in that, unfortunately, there are not that many women in my industry yet. Um, 
I think the the estimate that I've heard is something like fifteen to twenty percent of a relatively young young uh, career um, area anyway. So it, there's not that many women in my industry yet, which is of course something that I'm trying to support uh, to, to increase that number as well in in any outreach work I do. Um, but anyway, the the point is that I. I think there, we, even within data science, there are different types of roles you can take. So um, we there are data engineering challenges, which are more around how do we build a database? How do we load our data onto that? How do we manipulate the data on the database? Then there is the machine learning part, which is more around using analytics together with coding. Um, and then, of course, there's there's a quote-unquote softer end of the spectrum where it's about visualizing that data and creating stories around the data, creating insights, uh, communicating that to a wider audience. Um, and, and definitely, I know for sure that um, within the data engineering side, so which is really hardcore database work and, and computer engineering, um, there are even fewer women in that side. And of course, if we go into more the visualization side, which comes more close to, to graphic design, etc., there are more women. So, so yes, even within data science, there is a bit of a, a, a range of um, where mm. people go and, and how they choose their careers, which I think comes quite natural in the sense that, as I said, you have to have a very thick skin to be the only woman in the team. And yeah. and therefore, yeah. status quo is often maintained that if you tend to have more women in the design department, then other women prefer to work in the design department um, and yeah. vice versa. So, yeah, it's a problem. So do you have sort of partners in crime? <laughs> uh, well, in, in my team, we have... Um, a female uh, software developer. We have two female data scientists besides myself. Um, we have a female product manager, um, and um, and we have female uh, executives as well. So I think the company I work in um, is is actually very good with this. And I guess what I think that this company has done well is that they're very focused on diversity. So it's part of the it's part of the corporate message. It's part of the values of the company it's part of how they present themselves um they they really go through all the communication both internally and externally with a sort of fine tooth comb um to figure out are we in some ways biasing what we're writing here um and mm -hmm. and that helps but it it i can see that it is a relentless piece of work that that you cannot relax yeah. about it you have to constantly think about constantly have diversity at the front of mind yeah yeah it's also we're getting to a sort of stage where um the genders are becoming uh more unisex in their outlook and um i just feel with the rise of digital platforms and social media that uh people are becoming more and more outspoken about their own individual diversity mm -hmm. yeah um and so sometimes when I bring up the gender debate I wonder whether I'm just being really old-fashioned <laughs> you know it's things are changing that rapidly 
No, I don't think it's old fashioned and and we have to also remember that many of us live in, live in the metropoles of the world in London for example or we live in Berlin or Paris and and we are we are seeing the tip of the iceberg in terms of these sort of issues. I have I have traveled, I have presented data science in other countries. Um I have presented in rural Germany for example where it it is miles away from the gender debate we see in London, um, places where even homosexuality is considered really a sin, right? Um, so, and and they are way way apart from from where we feel we are talking about gender fluidity, mm-hmm. etc. So, I, I I think it will be a long long time before the whole world will see gender in such a a fluid way, and in the meantime. We need to keep push, pushing the agenda for for women worldwide because it's it's a struggle worldwide. And maybe if I can add one thing though that could potentially be a benefit going forward is also remote working. Um, there are more and more opportunities mm-hmm. now for um, everyone to work remotely. Um, so using video tools and chat tools and and code sharing, etc. Um, I think that's an, actually an opportunity for women as well. Um, that they can be more flexible in their working, but yet have great careers where they're not judged by if they're wearing a dress or not, for example. Yeah, yeah. I mean, on that note about femininity, um, you know, you mentioned you're married. Um, Where, if anywhere, does kind of maybe motherhood fit into your life? Is that something you've thought about? Well, it's um, in the early stages of of my career. Obviously, it was not a rush. It was something that could wait. Um, and my career has always been a bit of a baby for me. It was something that was very important to me, and something that both me and my husband treasured in some some point, uh, in some sense. Um, and so, for now, that is that's where the focus is. Um, but who knows what the future will bring? Right. Yeah, I mean, it's always so difficult for women um, as, you know, power women, alpha women, whatever you want to call them, like to really fit everything in. I I think Um, actually there's sometimes you see these profiles of these super women, right, who have amazing careers and they have five children and they do pro bono work and this and that. I, I somehow I don't know it's they're supposed to be role models but for me they just give me a bad uh, make me feel guilty for not being able to juggle as much uh, <laughs> I totally agree and you know I often ask on this podcast what does having it all mean to you and some women have got quite passionate about it and saying you know having it all is just such a myth it's impossible mm. to have it all um I mean, you can look to, you can seem as though you have it all, but there's just no way you can have it all at the same time. What are your views on it? Well, I feel um, <clears throat> so. Obviously, I have been very driven in my career my whole life. As I said, I, I decided I was going to become a scientist when I was in my teenage years, and I pursued that, and I was successful in that. And then I decided I wanted a different career, and, and now I've had that. And, um, so I'm very driven and ambitious, but at the same time, there's a little lazy side in me as well, which would be very happy 
to just, you know, lazy about a bit at home and potter about a garden and, and so on and so forth. And one of my teachers once said to me, what if you just try to be content? I thought that's, mm -hmm. that's a word. I don't even really know what it means, to be honest. Um, and, and I, Why? Why? Um, because, because there was always something driving or urging me forward my whole life. There was always another rock to climb, essentially, and uh, and and I, I I'm proud of that. It it has made me who I am today. But but I, I have, as I get older now, I realize that the actual challenge in life, I think, is being content. And that doesn't mean that you know you have to give up and or accept second best. Not at all. But finding a place where where you are happy and content with your life, whatever that is. And it, it comes back to knowing who you are, understanding yourself um, um, and finding that contentment. So that's that's my having it all, finding a place where yeah. I'm content with what I have, whatever it may be. I'm not there yet. Mm. <laughs> that's so beautiful, though. I mean, have you always had a strong sense of self? Because I really do feel like you you know yourself well, but has it always been that way or has it been a journey? Of course, it's always a journey, but I think, um, yeah, I, I was a, a thoughtful child. As I said, I, I was curious. I was observing things. I was thinking about, as a child already, I was thinking about why do people behave that way or, or this way? And, um, and then as I think actually many of us do, went through a bit of a, a depression in my teenage years, um, which meant that I basically had to understand myself because otherwise I wouldn't have become healthy again. So uh, through mm -hmm. through therapy, which was a good way to start that journey of, of self-understanding. And, and I think I basically for the rest of my life since then, I've been trying to trying to understand who I am and what it is that motivates me and what makes me happy. Yeah, I feel that with this podcast, I am actually moving into the realm of emotional and mental well-being because you can't mm -hmm. really have a successful career or a successful education without taking a look at one's emotional well-being. Mm -hmm. um, but it's not something we're taught at school. No, and it's not it's not something we talk about either. And this is one of those things where I feel I wish we could talk more openly about specifically mental health, of course. And and I know there's a big drive in society as a whole to talk more about mental health. But certainly when you're in a career and you're a professional woman uh, striving for top positions, you, there is no way you could admit that you're not feeling well um, or, or that that you have panic attacks or you're depressed or whatever it might be. There's no way you could admit it because it's a weakness and it means that you will be overlooked for that next position. And so we can't talk about it and we have to pretend that everything's all right. And that's not helpful for ourselves and it's not helpful for the rest of society either because it does make, make it look like we are all perfect. And so those women who do suffer from, from these sort of symptoms think, well, I can't make that because I'm not like that um mm. yes uh, and, and we do suffer from a lot of stress and pressure i think so i think there are a lot yeah. of women professional women who suffer in silence mm. hence this podcast mm. <laughs> I, mean, I i wonder what 
the world would look like if we were able to talk about it. I mean, I mean, I just, I can't imagine it because the way we have, I mean, you know, this podcast is anonymous. Um, you know, when people do talk about their emotional well-being, um, it's always like this big revelation. Mm. I mean, I just can't imagine what it would be like in a corporate world to be having these conversations. Can you? No, no, I can't. Um, and yeah, recently, I recently, um, so I've, I've suffered from a bit of bad health myself throughout the times. And at times I wasn't sure whether the symptoms I were feel I was feeling were actually because of a, a, a physical uh, condition or somehow psychosomatic from the press, press, uh, pressure and stress I was feeling. Um, mm. And I found myself <clears throat> really, really wishing that it was something physical because if I had to go to my boss and say, well, I'm, I need to take time off because I have illness X, they would go, yeah. oh, I'm so sorry. I hope you get better soon. Need any support you need, you know, take time off. Yeah. And if you go and say, I need to take time off because I'm depressed, it's a very different reaction. Um, and again, mm. there's a stigma that follows that. Even if you were to come back to work um, after a period of time, a period of time off. So, what's actually amazing is um, the number of women who are fully functioning at work. Not just women, men as well, mm-hmm. who are fully functioning at work, but actually, you know, look back on those times where they were juggling or spinning so many pa- plates. And saying, yeah, I was really depressed during that time. But it was actually work that mm. covered it all up because yeah. I just kept busy. Yeah. Yes, I think it's true. And I think um, I think that's that's when people get very hurt and very ill when when they continue then to to push on and pretend like everything's fine and, and bottle it up um, until they reach break, breaking point. Um, mm-hmm. So, I, I, yeah, it's I do. It's a conundrum. I don't know. Um I I would never go out and, and openly admit that I have depressions because I I would worry what it does to my career. However, I wish we could all do it. <laughs> uh, yeah. I wish there would be a day of amnesty for everyone to go on that day. You know what? I don't feel well. <laughs> they can just get honest. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and tell it how it is. Mm. Oh, my God, that would just be so freeing. <laughs> Um, you mentioned right at the beginning of this podcast that you really love what you do. And I must say that when I heard the passion in your voice, um, it was kind of infectious. I'm, I'm so curious about data science now. It just sounds really, really awesome and interesting and revealing. It is. Um, what advice would you give to anyone who, you know, has had their curiosity sparked about this, this scientific field? Well, so in terms of data science, it is um, it's a field of where there's a lot of interest, and the good thing about that means that there are enormous amounts of fantastic resources free on the web for anyone who's interested. So, if anyone's interested, first thing you go is Google and and start searching around. Um, if you have a bit more time and you want to get more into it. Um, there's plenty of fantastic free online courses, so places like Coursera or edX um, or other of these sort of MOOC courses. Um, they they have all all of them have introductory courses to data science to follow, and and they they tend to be generally free as well. So it's just your time that that's needed to uh, get up to speed with it. Um, mm. But yeah, I would just suggest 
Googling around, reading about case studies, about how it works, about what a career in data science is like, um, and, and get stuck in because it's, it's so easy to get started. Anyone can do it, absolutely anyone, I promise. Uh, just depends on how much motivation and how much time you have. And uh, I just, yeah, do it. Yeah. And is the money good? I know it's a terrible question to ask. <laughs> um, well, there, there was a time when Harvard, uh, Harvard Business Review called data science the sexiest job of the 21st century. And part of that was salary. Um, I, I think salaries now are coming down a little bit, but a starting salary yes because it is becoming very popular so starting salaries in london i would say are around forty thousand pounds a year mark um but uh, as you become more senior uh, the really top people in this industry are earning a hundred thousand pounds plus a year so it's still a very very good career and it's a career that's where the need the demand is just going to keep growing so mm. there will there will always be jobs for those who are interested in this well thank you so much for introducing me to a world that i don't really know that much about but i'm sure i've i've reaped the benefits of the work <laughs> that you do even if it's just you know me being on facebook or something like i think we're very affected by the, the work that you do as data scientists. So thank you so much for sharing. Thank you very much for having me. And uh, I hope that uh, the, the sharing my thoughts can help someone else as well. I'm sure it will. That's it from my STEM guest this week. Gosh, what a fascinating area of work. It's not something I've ever really thought of, but I think it really does affect my life, your life, everybody's lives as we, you know, we navigate through this digital era where so much data is being generated and processed so that we can get a better understanding of who we are as human beings. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to rate and review the show and catch you next week on Silence. <laughs>